Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. One of the absurdities that we say, see in the life of people, and sometimes in our own lives, is we have this tendency to want to resist God. That there is this thing in us that from time to time we resist God, and we do it for several reasons. One of them is we don't want to relinquish control to God. We're afraid that if we move toward God that somehow we're going to lose control, which is true, probably, um, that's a good reason to be afraid and, and maybe to resist. Uh, we'll talk about that at the end. Sometimes we resist because there's an area of our life that we don't want to relinquish. You know, we think we've got everything buttoned down, it's all pretty good, but there's just this one area, and we're not really sure about that, and uh, God, I really don't want to give that one area to you, and he says, no, I, you know, I, I, I want that area too. Like, God may, may look at someone and say, you can't date her anymore, it's not good for you, or you can't, you know, you can't pursue that anymore, it's not good for you. We're afraid that he's going to take something away from us, and the truth is, he probably will. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end, because it doesn't quite happen the way you think it is. You think God's just going to rip it away. God wants you to give it. He wants you to give it up. He wants you to give it away. We'll talk about that at the end. Another reason we resist God sometimes is because we're mad at him. God wasn't trustworthy. God could have kept something from happening, and he didn't keep it from happening, and so the consequences of that kind of blow back on you and, 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 or someone that you loved, and, and you faced those circumstances, and you thought, you know what, God, you could have kept that from happening, and you didn't, and there may be other reasons we resist, but at least for me and probably for you, those are the main reasons that we resist God, and as we've come to this Easter season, we're taking a look at a couple of characters in, in the New Testament that, that come out of the passion story both of whom decided to try to resist God in some way. And the reason that this is such a fascinating study is that both of them, in their own way, in their own attempt to resist God, actually validated the very thing that they fought so hard against. The legacy of both of their, their lives is the same that will be basically the legacy for our life if we try to resist him, which is the hand of God cannot be forced and his will cannot be resisted. You can't force God to do something or to act in a certain way, and you can't stop God from doing what God is going to do. And even though they tried in their own way to force their own agenda on God in the end, the story is God is in control. And the reason that this is so relevant for me and for you is because that will be the legacy of our lives as well. And those of us who try to resist God and tell him no. And at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the season of our life or at the end of our life, that will be the conclusion that we draw, that God is in control. The difference between us and them, however, is that they were actually in the presence of Jesus. Today's character, in all likelihood, touched Jesus, was around Jesus a lot, spent several years with him. In fact, the Bible says that he was a thief. He was a pretender. And the reason that he signed up with Jesus was simply to get something from Jesus that he wanted. He was somebody who was always trading, always willing to do a deal, always looking for what he might gain or how he might benefit. He followed Jesus because he believed there was something in it for him. And along the way, he discovered that Jesus does not deal. He does not barter. He does not trade. At that moment in the story, he flipped. He changed sides and he became a trader. There is a little bit of Judas in all of us. And the reason I say that is because there's something in us that from time to time we want to do a deal with God, don't we? In fact, if we were to evaluate our prayers, I think they would sound a little something like this. God, if you, then I. And God, since I, shouldn't you? 
And God, have you noticed? And God, would you consider? And oftentimes, without meaning to, instead of coming to God from a standpoint of, I surrender all, we come to him from the standpoint of, let's make a deal. God, God let's, let's do a deal. And, and you don't think of it in those terms, but for some of us, that is basically our entire relationship with God. In fact, you might not even want to call it a relationship. You might say, Brett, I, you know, I do what I do. I live my life. I do children. I do work. And then once in a while, if there's something that got, kind of gets out of control and there's something that I can't get, then I go to God and I say, God, um, can, can we make a deal? God, I will do this if you will do that. And I don't know if I have a love relationship with God, but basically I'm always trying to do a, a deal. I guess I love God, but I, I'm usually trying to do a deal with God. But Brett, you're right. Basically, I'm, I'm dealing. I'm, I'm bartering. There's always something in it for me. And so it was for Judas. That's why Judas followed, signed up to follow Jesus to begin with, because Judas, like the rest of his disciples, believed that Jesus was from God. There's no dispute about that. He thought he was God. Jesus claimed to be a king. He talked about a coming kingdom and the kingdom of God. And Judas, like the rest of the disciples, um, thought that one day Jesus would become a physical king, that he would throw off the prophet robes and he would put on the, the, the kingly robes and, and have an earthly kingdom. And, you know, that in that moment, whoever was closest to Jesus would be the winners. And so these 12 guys are thinking, you know, when that happens, it's going to be great for us. Because you want to be close to the guy when he becomes the king. When you're close to the guy that becomes the king, that fallout is pretty good for you. But Judas wasn't the only one. In fact, as you read the, the Gospels, it's really kind of funny. Most of the disciples kind of tipped their hand to the fact that they were kind of after something for themselves. That this wasn't just all about Jesus. Um, they were in this for their own sake as well. There's a passage in the Bible where Peter just comes right out and says it. And Matthew, he, he, he basically looks at Jesus and says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, Jesus, I'm in this for you, but um, I'm in this for me too. And, and remember, Jesus, I left my family and I left the fishing boats and I left my dad and I left the business and I did it all to follow you. And at the end of the day, what do I get out of it? Let's make a deal. Let's barter. Let's bargain. There was another time when Jesus and the disciples were walking along and Jesus could hear a conversation behind him. And it was two of his disciples and they were arguing about which one would be the greatest in the kingdom when, because they thought Jesus is going to put on the crown and he's going to wear this king's robe. And when that happens, Lord, who's, you know, who, who's going to be the, the alpha male? Who's going to be the, the greatest in your kingdom? Who's, what positions are we going to get? Because they thought he would rule like King David ruled and like King Solomon ruled. But as time went on, the disciples began to understand that Jesus didn't bargain. That Jesus didn't deal. That Jesus wasn't looking for a bartering relationship. Jesus was looking for a relationship of surrender. And eventually, every one of the disciples was able to come to a place in their life where they were willing to lay down their agendas and quit trying to do deals with God and go out and say, Jesus is who he claimed that he was, and he is the Messiah. And they were willing to give up their lives and their livelihood. They were willing to surrender everything in order to follow Jesus. Eventually, they quit trying to deal and simply surrendered and followed. All except Judas. Judas never stopped trying to put together the deal. He never was fully able to surrender, 
For Judas, there was always a trade. There was always something in it for him. And he followed and he listened and he kept waiting for the day when surely Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Now, there were some inconsistencies that Judas probably would have noticed as he watched Jesus go through his life. For instance, Jesus did not seem to hate the Romans the way you would expect someone who was going to have an earthly kingdom to hate the Romans. You know, they tried to get Jesus to hate the Romans. He just, he wouldn't do it. Another thing that might have tipped him off was that Jesus wouldn't really start an organization. You know, he would heal these people and he would say, you know, go show yourself to the Pharisees. He didn't try to gather people around him and and have this big organization and this big, you know, thing going on. Um, Another problem that that Judas might have seen was that Jesus didn't really seem to try to uh, develop a war chest. You know, if you were going to fuel a revolution, you've got to have a war chest to do that. And Jesus didn't seem interested in gaining money. Jesus didn't seem interested in accumulating a lot of wealth so that he could have this kingdom. And then finally, Jesus didn't seem to do much to try to get the religious leaders on his team. Like he didn't, you know, he he made them mad a lot, but he didn't really, he didn't um, buddy up to people and he didn't uh, tickle ears and he didn't tell people the things that they wanted to hear so that they would be on his team. And as time went by, it began to occur to Judas, Jesus is not playing along, and he and I do not share the same agenda. Jesus seems to have his own thing in mind, and I'm kind of more like Peter, if I'm totally honest about it. What's in this for me? You know, I'm not getting out of this what I think I wanted to get out of this. You know, I'm just getting older. It's all happening for me. And so as time went by, Jesus began to lose his popularity, and when that happened, Judas began to wonder, maybe I've hitched my wagon to the wrong horse. Maybe I need to switch sides. So in Matthew chapter 26, which is where I'd like for you to look this morning, there was one particular incident that apparently kind of pushed Judas over the edge in this whole thing. Matthew 26 verse 6 is a little story, and there's an incident that seems pretty inconsequential to us. It does not seem like a big deal. But Judas was there, and when this little event took place, it was the final straw for him. Judas finally realized, this is going nowhere, I'm wasting my time, and I'm not getting anything out of this deal. So Matthew 26, verse 6, we pick up there, it says this, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now I'm going to read this story also from the book of John in a minute, and you may be here today and not know this. Um, I just want you to know this. Maybe nobody has ever told you this. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're reading are four separate stories, four separate accounts of the same life of Christ. Most people know that, but maybe you didn't know that. That, that, So Matthew tells the story from one perspective, John tells it from another, Luke from another, Mark from another. And so we have what Matthew had to say about it. We also have what John had to say about it. We're going to read about this little perfume jar this alabaster jar and john in just a moment we're going to find out that it was worth more than a year's wages so think about taking a year's worth of your salary in the form of a jar with some perfume in it and pouring that out on somebody else she comes up behind jesus with this jar of perfume and she pours it out on his head now let's just make a deal that if i ever come to your house and eat or you come to mine we're not going to sneak up on each other and pour perfume on one another okay just make a deal, because that's kind of strange. And we think, you know, a year's wages, how, how much would that be? How long would it take to pour that out? You know, like a year's wages, you know, glub, 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 glub. You know, that's this not what it was. It was tiny, not very big. 
This was a compliment. This was medicinal. It was relaxing. It was cleansing. There are all kinds of ramifications. And she comes up behind him and she pours this down Jesus, the back of his head, and it kind of runs down his hair. And the scent begins to fill the room. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. That is a very strong Greek word. It means they were mad. In fact, it's hard to tell whether they were mad at her or whether they were mad at Jesus. Why would you do that? And Jesus, why would you let her? You know, why would you waste this perfume? And Jesus, don't you know better? Shouldn't you reprimand her and shouldn't you tell her something? And suddenly there's all this emotion in the room. They were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. We're just concerned about the poor. There's just, you know, there are people that haven't eaten for weeks and, you know, you let her waste all this money. Now what John tells us is that it wasn't just the disciples, but that it was Judas specifically who was kind of stirring people up and trying to make trouble. In John chapter 12, here's the account of the same incident. John 12 verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor it was worth a year's wages and then look at the next line verse six he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put inside jesus had a thief in his midst judas from from day one had 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 not been uh you know this really wasn't about Jesus' agenda. This was about, as far as Judas was concerned, it was about Judas' agenda. What's in it for me? And how can I leverage Jesus for my own purposes? How can I get what I want out of this? How can I barter? How can I trade? How can I leverage Jesus for my own ends? Judas, and this is hard to imagine, but Judas was actually stealing from Jesus. Now you have to wonder how smart Judas was Because Jesus had demonstrated time and again that he knew what was on people's minds. He had demonstrated time and again that he knew what people was thinking. And and you got to know that Judas has seen this enough times where, you know, he tells somebody, kind of guesses what they're thinking. That would have blown me away. But Judas somehow thinks he can dip into the money sack and take money and nobody's going to know. I'm going to, you know, profit myself in the process. And then one day Jesus is going to become king and I'm going to be one of the 12 and then I'm going to be set for life. But on this afternoon, as he sat there, and he watched a woman pour thousands of dollars worth of perfume on the master's head, he went crazy. And as you put the accounts together, apparently it was Judas who said to Peter, Peter, would you look at that? Look at that. You know, do you realize what could have been done with the money that was spent on that perfume? We, we could have taken that money and we could have fed the poor with it. Bartholomew, I think you need to say something to Jesus. I've tried to say something to him. He doesn't listen to me. So maybe one of you needs to say something to him. Judas was in the background trying to stir this whole thing up until finally the disciples are indignant about what this woman has done. But behind all of it was Judas because he's thinking, we're not getting anywhere. We are spinning our wheels. I mean, if this guy ever expects to have a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, we're never going to get there with him letting somebody pour out thousands of dollars worth of perfume. We could have used that money for the war chest. And the Bible says that this was the final straw. Going back to Matthew 26, verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Pause. 
what? When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. What? Jesus, you're the king. We've been over this. You know, we've been been doing this deal for about three years now because one day you're going to be the king and we're going to kind of be your dudes. And one day, you know, prepare your body for burial. Jesus, you're not even sick. Besides that, you, you raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, you know, nothing is impossible for you. What are you talking about? You're not going to be here forever. It doesn't make any sense. Now, keep in mind, what I'm about to read was written in the first century, and you may be here and be a skeptic or you're not sure about Jesus, but I'm telling you, the kind of stuff I'm about to read, it really trips the trigger for Christians, okay? Like, it makes, it, it makes Christians kind of go crazy. Jesus said, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're talking about what this lady did. Jesus said, guys, I'm telling you, you may not think this is a big deal. This is a big deal. They're going to be talking about this years from now. One day, Brett Wilson, 2017, going to have these people in a room. He's going to tell them about what she just did. It's going to be a powerful sermon. And they're looking at him like, what story? You know, what are you talking about? Jesus knew forever and ever people are going to talk about this. She has prophesied my my death and my burial. What she's done is so honoring because she was willing to devote and worship me with her wealth. People are going to know what she's done. And then in verse 14, we come to a, a really big word, then which means this is connected, this is a result of, as a result of what happened. When you see a then, you should usually circle that in your Bible. It's connecting two thoughts. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing, what's it say next, to give me? What are you willing to give me? Because you see, chief priest, I've been trying to get something from Jesus for three years and it's gotten me nowhere. This isn't about Jesus, this is about Judas, and if if he won't give me what I want, I'll come to the next set of power brokers and maybe I can get what I want from them. What are you willing to give me? Because this is, after all, about me. You see, you read this story of Judas and you ask, how could somebody betray Jesus? It's pretty simple. When our agenda takes precedence over God's agenda... We have set ourselves up to betray our Heavenly Father. It's that simple. Whether it's his values, his morality, his church, his people, when your agenda and mine takes precedence over God's agenda, we have set ourselves up to betray God. And we would never do it consciously, but that's how Judas betrayed Jesus because he, there was something that he wanted more than than what Jesus wanted. He wanted something more than what he wanted, the same things that Jesus wanted, if that makes any sense to you. He wanted what Judas wanted. So he flipped, he traded, he switched sides. When there was no longer anything in it for him as far as Jesus was concerned, he went over to the dark side and he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He's standing in front of these guys. What are you willing to give me? If I deliver him over to you. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, here's the most fascinating part of the story. We know this from the Gospels, but Jesus knew that Jesus, Jesus 
Yeah, try to preach a sermon about Jesus, Jesus and Judas and not say Jesus one time. <clears throat> it's going to happen, okay? Jesus knows that Judas is a traitor. He knows that Judas is dipping into the purse. Jesus knew where all this was going, and, and, and now Judas has actually gone out and betrayed Jesus. He gets 30 pieces of silver. He comes back to the gang. He's going to set all this up and figure out how he will deliver Jesus in the middle of the night, in the garden, in secret to the Pharisees and the rulers. And he shows back up in the presence of Jesus and the disciples. And I don't want you to miss this because it's huge. Do you know what the next thing is that Jesus does with Judas? He kneels down by a basin of water. He takes Jesus' filthy, stinking, dusty, muddy sandal off of his filthy, dusty, traitorous foot and he washes Judas' feet knowing what Judas has just done. My whole life, I've run into people who thought they were super spiritual. And they wanted everybody to know it. Let me tell you, there's a difference between looking spiritual and being spiritual. It's easy to look spiritual. I've done it. You've done it. We know how to do it. You say the right words, you do the right stuff in public, you wear the right clothes, hang out with the right people, you go to church, make sure you're consistently going to church so everybody thinks you're a good, super spiritual person. It's pretty easy, especially in America, to look spiritual. Being spiritual, not so much. You want to test your spirituality, you want to know how you're doing and your walk with Jesus, you want to find out how super spiritual you are, try this. Wash the feet of the people who betray you. Do that. Don't talk other people down. Don't criticize. Don't gossip. Don't share their sin as a prayer request. Don't talk about them the way they talk about you. Wash their feet. Jesus washed Judas' feet. See, I'm thinking, if it's me, and I'm telling the story, it goes down way different. I'm thinking, you know, if I'm writing the story, Judas goes and betrays Jesus, gets his 30 pieces of silver, comes walking into the room with the disciples, and Jesus, by this time, has already told all the other disciples what Judas has done, and the other disciples are waiting, okay? They're laying in wait, and when Judas walks in, they jump him and they kick his tail. See, that's how I write the story. That'd be my plan, but it gets worse. Not only does that not happen, Jesus does nothing. He doesn't respond. He goes on as if nothing's happened. And then they gather around the Passover table. They're about to take the Passover meal. And this is hours from the very moment when Judas is going to betray Jesus with a kiss in the garden. And then Jesus drops this bomb. Hey, guys, one of you is going to betray me. And the Bible says that they started looking at each other. Like, Peter, is it you? James, is it you? Lord, Lord is, it, is it me? Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. 
Somewhere in the midst of the emotion and the conversation, Judas looks at Jesus and says, Lord, is it me? Now imagine this moment. Jesus never lifts a finger. He says, Judas, it's you, and what you're going to do, go do it quickly. I'm not going to stop you. I don't bargain. I don't deal. I don't get intimidated. I don't, I'm not leveraged, and I don't get threatened. Judas, what you plan to do, and I realize you didn't get much from us, and this isn't going your way, and you've got another plan. I know that. You go right ahead, Judas. I'll do nothing to stop you. Unbelievable. And I don't know what Judas thought, but maybe his thought was, you know, (laughs) you are one pathetic Messiah. To sit there and know what I'm about to do and to not stop me, you coward. You're no king. You're no Messiah. You're certainly no son of man. Who in their right mind, knowing what I'm about to do, would allow me to go out and and do it? You sit there and you do nothing? This is the best decision I've ever made. I don't know why I wasted as much time with you as I've already wasted. I should have done this a long time ago. I've wasted three years of my life hanging out with you. Your whole movement is about to unravel and you sit there and you do nothing. I will have something to show for the time I put in. And he walked out and he set the scene for the arrest and the trial of Jesus. And Jesus does nothing. And I want to make sure you understand this. The reason that Jesus does nothing is because Jesus doesn't deal. He does not bargain. He does not barter. He is a king. And as time went went by, it began to dawn on Judas after he saw that Jesus was arrested and he's still putting up no fight. In fact, his guys leave him and he's all alone and now he's been condemned. And suddenly it begins to occur to Judas, wait a minute, he's going to be condemned to die. And suddenly he begins to see that neither side he has played has worked out for his benefit. He got nothing from following Jesus, and now all he has is blood money from the other side. And all of a sudden, it dawns on him what what the legacy of his life is going to be, which is really the legacy of our life when we try to deal and bargain with God, that God's hand cannot be forced. If Jesus is king and his time has not come to reveal himself as king, Judas, you are not going to force his hand. It's not going to happen. God's hand cannot be forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. By simply doing some deal with his enemies, you are not going to thwart the will of God. Because you are simply Judas, and Jesus is the king, and the king doesn't deal, and the king doesn't bargain. We skip to Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, in other words, when when Judas saw, he's not going to do anything. He's going to passively stand by while I betray him, while the Pharisees accuse him, and while Pilate crucifies him. What is with this guy? When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Get this. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Listen to the reply of the Pharisees. What is that to us? They replied. 
Would you say this next part with me? That's your responsibility. Again, that's your responsibility. See, Judas all of a sudden is saying, I feel very alone. All these years I've been asking what's in it for me and all of a sudden it's only me and I need some help and I need a partner and I need someone to come alongside me. And in that incredibly intense time of isolation, Judas hears these words, that's your deal, dude. You set that up. You came to us. We didn't come to you. Okay, that's your responsibility, Judas, not ours. Verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left and on his way out got struck, God struck him down with lightning. Wait, that's not what it says. No? Oh, here it is. We went, he went out and got on his donkey to head out of town and he came to an intersection, had a head-on collision with another donkey and went right through the ears and hit a telephone pole. No? Please hear this, okay? This is really important for somebody in the room. Somebody walked through these doors this morning because they need to hear this. This is huge. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. No lightning bolt necessary. No car wreck. No strange disease, no supernatural act necessary. God doesn't stoop that low because God doesn't bargain. If you, then I. God doesn't play that game. It's as if God says, you know what, I'm not even going to get into the fray because I'm God and my son does not dip to that level because he's the king. And Judas, you couldn't leverage me on one side and you couldn't win on the other. This is your responsibility. And at the end of the day, God doesn't even have to do anything because Judas hung himself. And his legacy is the legacy of any man or woman who tries to bargain with God and to bring God down to our size and our level. God's hand cannot be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. I want to say a couple of quick things to those of you who, if you're completely honest, your whole approach to God is this bargaining thing. God, let's make a deal. God, did you see me at church today? I was at church today. Did you notice? In fact, you might be here today because there's something bad that you want to do later tonight, and so you came to church hoping that you'll get on God's good side and he won't strike you down later, or nobody will find out, or you won't be in a car wreck, or the lightning won't strike, you know, or you did something last night and you're thinking, well, maybe I should go to church this morning and let God see me there. And, you know, God's going to say, all right, you're at church, good for you. You didn't even fall asleep. You even tried to sing that song. It wasn't very good, but you tried. See, I know the games you guys play because I've played those games too. Listen, it's an incredible insult to God. It's like calling God stupid. Hey, watch this. Hey, God, I'll make a deal with you. Watch this, watch, watch. I'll make a deal. If you'll do this, then I'll do that. Watch. He's so stupid. He doesn't know. That's how we pray sometimes. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what you need to hear. God doesn't deal. He's God. God doesn't bargain. He doesn't if you, then I. 
God is God. And for the man or woman who tries to approach God from some standpoint of God, let's make a trade, if, if I, then you. Here are some things you can predict. I'm going to give you four real quick. And you don't have to write these down. I'm not putting them on the wall. I'm going to say the one that kind of sticks out for you and is the one that's kind of special for you. You'll remember it, I think. If, if you're going to try to deal with God so that you can get by with something, can I just tell you, go ahead and do it. Don't try to make a deal. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. God, I really want to do this, but, but you, know, I'll, I, you know, if you'll let me do this, just do it. Don't ask God's permission. Don't try to make a deal with God. You know why? Because God doesn't deal in those terms. My advice is he probably won't stop you. You probably won't have a wreck on the way. So-and-so probably won't find out. You'll probably get away with it. Now, there are some exceptions, you may, and you may be the exception, but for the most part, and I mean, I got to say that because, I, you know, I should be honest, because there's some places in the Bible where they didn't get away with it. But, but for the most part, if there's something that you want to do and get by with, my advice is just go ahead and do it. Don't wait for God's permission. God's not going to try to stop you. And it's very confusing and it's very deceiving. It's confusing for those of you who, 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 of us who love you because some of you have teenagers, right? Some of you have teenagers and let's say you've got like a 15 or 16-year-old girl and you, you've told her, hey, listen, if you sneak out of the house, um, you're going to be in big trouble and, you know, you know what you can expect. Don't do that. And you're hoping that if she ever sneaks out that the police will pick her up They'll take her to the police station. She might have to spend a little time in a little cell, you know, throw the fear of God into her a little bit, but she'll be safe, and she'll learn her lesson. But in fact, that's usually not what happens. What usually happens is she sneaks out, she has a great time, she gets away with it and thinks, hmm, I'll do that again. And she does it some more. And then you find out about it, and you go, God, why couldn't, you, why couldn't they have just had a little wreck? Just a little one, not a big one, don't want anybody hurt, just a little wreck, and in somebody else's car, by the way, that'd be great, not my car. Why can't there be small lightning bolts? Why can't there be some kind of instant consequence? And the truth is, for the most part, no, it just doesn't happen that way. And it's frustrating for us who love people who are saying, you know what, God, I'm going to deal with God, and I'm going to do this deal, and if it doesn't do my, my, doesn't do my deal, then I'm going to go do my deal my own way. It's frustrating for us. See, the good news, you should just go ahead and do whatever it is that you want to do. Don't try to make a deal with God. Just do it. You'll probably get away with it. He probably won't get in your way. He's not going to call the other 11 disciples to beat you up. Probably won't happen. You're just going to do what you're going to do. See, I keep saying this to people, but, but it really is the truth. Jesus is not trying to control you. And it's interesting because we want to try, we don't want God to control us, but boy, we're all in on trying to control God. Yeah, we all like that idea. God, I don't want you to control me. Now, you keep your hands off me, but let's do a deal here. And God... Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? Second thing is this. At the point that you are responsible for the out, at some point, you are responsible for the outcome of the journey. And initially, that doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't bother us because we're so cool and we're so slick and we're so rich and we, you know, we're connected. And, but you need to know you are responsible for the outcome of your actions. And when you come back and you say, yeah, but I didn't know. I wasn't planning on that happening. You need to hear the Pharisees saying to Judas, that's not our responsibility that's on you, brother. That's not on me. The third thing I would say to you from this story and throughout Scripture 
and the stories basically surrounding all of us today in this room is, is eventually not at the beginning. And that's what's so deceiving is at first you don't see it, but eventually you will begin to self-destruct. People who work contrary to the Heavenly Father, people who try to deal, do a deal with God and leverage God for their own ends in some way, they always ultimately self-destruct. Judas hung himself. He didn't need any help. You'll eventually hang yourself. You don't need any help. You won't, you, no one, God doesn't have to intervene. It, it, it's just the fallout of doing life. It is the consequence of us doing stuff we shouldn't do. I, I see it all the time. People try to do a deal with God. They barter with God. God doesn't play along and they say, you know what? Forget you, God. I'm going to go do it my own way. Sin blows back on their life. Their, their life is, a, is in total shambles. It's a mess. And they come in in tears. And I get it. Listen, I understand. And my heart goes out for these people who've just basically taken a sledgehammer to their life. And then it's no fun. Because now they're responsible for their actions. And they don't like the outcome. I could illustrate this a thousand different ways. I've got to move on. Over time, not overnight, you begin to self-destruct. And then the last thing is this, like Judas, especially if you're a Christian, you don't have to be a Christian, but it's, it's, it's pretty much true of us Christians. At the end of the day, you're going to come back. You just are. You'll come back to God, and you won't come back with anything to barter with. You'll come back to God, and you'll say, I surrender. I'm tired of trying to do it my way, and I'm not trying to bargain with you anymore, God. I surrender. I don't like where the journey took me. It didn't go to a good place. Even though I'm responsible for the outcome of the journey, I, it didn't go good. And you'll come back, and you'll come back with scars. You'll come back with things that you regret. You'll come back with things. You'll come back with dreams that can never come true because you ruined that. And that can never happen. And you wish it could be a different way, but it can't be that way anymore. And some things will be gone forever. Because the, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. I tell people this all the time. Everything that sin touches, it begins to kill. When sin touches it, it starts to die. But when you come back, your heavenly father will receive you because that's the kind of God that he is. He is the God of grace and mercy. But I gotta be honest with you, he does not erase the consequences of our behavior. He loves us too much to do that. The same way you don't remove all the consequences for your kids when they screw up in your house. You say, no, you're going to suffer the consequences because you've got to learn that this is going to cost you and hurt you. You discipline your kids because you love them. You're trying to provide for them and you're trying to protect for them. God does not remove the consequences because he loves you. And he will let you go through things and he will look at you and say, that's your responsibility. If ever there was somebody who had enough juice and enough currency going through his life to be able to do a deal with God it was Jesus in the garden after he's been betrayed after he's done everything the way God wanted him to do it and he knows what's around the corner for him and he's praying to God God I need something from you here's what I want I see where this is going God this does not look good to me I don't want to have to go through this is there any way we can do this another way can we take a detour around this cup that I'm about to have to drink 
And God, if you say no, then, then, then I'm surrendered to you. I'm just asking, but I'm not going to try to do a deal with you. Listen, if anybody had the juice and the ability to do a deal with God, it was Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. If Jesus was unwilling to do that and wasn't going to try to do that, who in the world do we think we are that we would try to do that with God? The consequences are always the same. Let me ask you just one question and we'll close. When you think about your approach to God over the years, is that kind of how you've approached God? God, if you, then I. God, if I do this, will you do that? Have you tried to bargain with God? Have you tried to leverage God in some way? No more dealing with God. No more if I do A, then God, will you do B? Let, let's don't do that anymore. Let's start our morning. Let's end our days by saying, not my will, but thy will be done. God, I surrender. No more bargaining. And when you make that decision, your heavenly Father takes, when you place the outcome in God's hands and you stop trying to dictate the outcome, then no longer is it your responsibility, but when you place it in God's hands, now he takes responsibility for your outcome. And you just watch what God does when you do things his way and he takes responsibility for the outcome. God is not trying to control you, okay? God doesn't force you to do things. God wants a relationship with you where he says, hey, you know this thing that's going on in your life? It's not good for you. It needs to stop. Would you, would you give that to me? And then he wants us to surrender. God very seldom in my life has ever reached in and just ripped something away from me. He asks me to surrender. And he asks you to surrender. God cannot be controlled and his will cannot be thwarted. We gotta quit trying to do that. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, there may be someone here that has never given their life to Christ and they think that God is gonna somehow try to ramrod their life in some way. He's not going to do that. He wants to set them free. And I pray they would see that this morning. I pray that they would see that what God wants is a relationship of surrender and that he is worthy of that surrender and that he will do the right things by us through that surrender. God, for the rest of us who have walked in here this morning, probably all of us at some point in our relationship with God have done this trying to do a deal. God, I was at church. Did you see that? I was at church. Father, forgive us for that kind of stuff. We, we should know better. We look just like Judas. But instead, Father, this morning, would we just be able to relinquish what's in our hands, the things that we're holding from you, the things that we're hiding from you, and just open our hands and say, God, I surrender. I want a relationship that is a relationship of surrender with you. And I am done trying to control you, and I'm done trying to control your will. And Father, this is hard. Because we do deals all the time. But you don't deal. Help us to learn our lessons in here so that we're ready to live it out there. And Father, may you be glorified this week as we go through our life totally surrendering to you the areas that you're calling us to. Lord, we love you. We worship you in these moments. You are awesome, and you're greatly to be praised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.